Norfolk Southern is delivering a low carbon economy, which benefits everyone. We're providing customers a way to significantly reduce their supply chain transportation emissions and improve air quality in our communities. As the first class one railroad to offer green bonds, I can tell you, we're not just in the business of moving freight. We are in the business of a better planet. There's over a trillion dollars of waste in supply chains today. The net zero carbon emission is something that corporates are taking very seriously. To meet these objectives, they're gonna have to take into consideration CO2 emissions. Welcome to Net Zero Carbon, the show where we focus on inspiration, insights and information in sustainability and transportation. I'm joined today by Freightways' Tyler Cole. Welcome. Thank you. Matt McClellan from Covenant. Welcome. Hey, thank you. So we're super excited to have you here today. We, we know you well um, and we know your work, but for those who don't, do you mind just doing a brief intro of Covenant and then the role you have there? Sure. Uh, Covenant's a long-haul carrier, so uh, we operate in the lower 48. We have, depending on the day, 28, 2,900 trucks, um, about double the number of trailers. We've been in business since 1986. Um, I'm the, the VP of Sustainability and Innovation, so what that means is all sustainability initiatives that we have as a company sort of begin and run through me. Uh, innovation is closely tied with that because, as both of you know, there so much of what's happening in sustainability is also related to innovation. And so um, those two titles together um, work um, together, but they also work independently. So, um, yeah, so I have the one job in the company that does not have anything to do with day-to-day -day operations. Probably the most non-essential person in the company. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> so, Tyler, we have a lot of conversations internally. Um, and every time I talk to you, I get energized and I'm informed. Same with you, Matt. The first time I met you, I think there was just like this, this passion and you could tell that you guys really both get it. I think what I'm super excited about today is really just to kind of bring you two together and vibe and like just get that energy and I don't know, just amplify and understand. You know, for me, always coming to these shows is understanding, you know, what from a listener we're going to have a broad spectrum of people who are hopefully tuning into this. Folks who are like you, who are deep into sustainability, and others who are trying to learn either from inside or outside our industry. And so I'm excited to see what um, what we can uncover today. But Tyler, just want to get your thoughts first. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to have you in studio. Hey, thanks. I know I shot you a handful of notes beforehand going through the CSR you guys recently released, which, bravo, is a great work. And not enough carriers are doing it. Although the trend is continuing to accelerate, we're seeing it from more and more, especially publicly facing companies that have you know, financial stakeholders that are being asked about ESG initiatives and things like that. Um, tell us a little bit about the report, maybe very high level, and then we sure. can jump into a few specific outcomes. But the one thing that I love as kind of the overarching story of the report that's very prominent at the beginning is it's possible to do good and to do business well. So speak to a little bit about sure. the values behind the initiative. So I think before we do that, uh, you, you know, it's always interesting when you hear buzzwords that people use every day. Innovation, internet, CSR is another one of those. And I'm often finding that people have different definitions of what that means. So mm -hmm. you mentioned CSR and ESG. So those are often used in the same sentence, but they're very different in a way. So I have spent a lot of time looking at this and talking to people like Craig Harper at Hunt. Um, Rachel Swabach, VP of ESG at C.H. Robinson, people who live this every day. And so CSR, corporate social responsibility, is more or less your philosophy as a company. It is, um, again, um, 
people profit planet or people uh, community and the environment and kind of what your approach is to that. ESG is like, the way I explain it to people is like CSR and steroids. These are things that the investment community, these are numbers, metrics, very specific goals that you set for yourself and track throughout the year and report at the end of the year. And these are environmental initiatives. We're going to be net zero by X day. Uh, Diversity initiatives. We're going to have this particular makeup of this particular group of employees by this date. And so if you're going to take an ESG position, you better be serious about it. Same with CSR, but it's more philosophical, I guess, is a right way to say it. Is that been your experience when you have conversations with people? Absolutely. And then good to describe it as on steroids, because most of this, especially from the CSR world, is a voluntary initiative. So many companies in the ESG world, it might be different, right? You might be operating in an industry where there are mandated regulatory disclosures that you must make based on your actions as a, as a firm. Within CSR, I find it's more employee-focused and customer-focused, giving the story of the company and kind of the heart behind the company. Um, so that was a really good explanation for it. So, so we did CSR, you know, as a publicly traded company, ESG is probably at some point in our future. We do have uh, investor calls where, where uh, the analysts are asking us where we are with that. Um, I just spent a little bit of time a few weeks ago looking at the, the top 50 for hire carriers. Only f- um, six, no, only five specifically have ESG reports. Wow. Of course, you would expect FedEx, uh, UPS. Uh, Warner just came out with theirs. Um, Oh gosh, who's the other one? Um, uh, but but these are what they specifically have ESG reports, and if you go back in the end, you see kind of what standard they're using to track it. So the rest of us, there's only eleven that have um, uh, CSR reports, at least that are publicly facing on their website. So sure. you're right; I would like to see more of it. But to your point, you know, it's um, it's interesting. Our customers started asking us questions around CSR about two years ago. First one popped up on an RFP. Where do you stand on renewables? Where do you stand on autonomous vehicles? Where do you stand on net carbon goals and objectives to be net zero by a certain date? Where do you stand on, do you have any hydrogen trucks, LNG trucks, CNG trucks in your fleet? And, you know, our CEO, our sales department, like, uh, would say they would be able to easily answer some of those questions. Others, they would sort of funnel down to me. And as we got the second RFP and the third RFP, and then during quarterly business reviews, customers would ask us specific questions. We decided to more formalize it. And so over the last year, I've been sort of looking throughout our company, all the things that we've been doing, all the things that are on our roadmap, all of that is in what is our 28-page CSR report. It's not minute level detail, but it's sort of our overarching philosophy towards, um, again, the environment to people and the community. That's interesting. So I think that's helpful to understand for myself too, just CSR is what, you, what you're telling your customers, your end users. ESG, your end users may want to know about that, but the real needy stuff probably for your customers is in that CSR report. Um, and that's helpful to understand. I think when we, you know, we're also trying to inform your peers when they think about how they can start to take bites of this apple. ESG, like you said, is on steroids and feels overwhelming. There's a lot of stuff that goes into that. So if they can focus on the CSR report, it sounds like that's a good place to start and was where you started. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I have conversations with friends that have, and this is, these are personal conversations about their personal finances where they are in funds that are specifically dedicated to um, ESG funds, companies right. that have very specific 
goals and objectives. The funny thing is, and there's a lot of articles on this, is that those funds are not necessarily the most profitable companies to be investing in. Um, for a lot of companies, it's a long play, right? Yeah. ESG is part of a longer roadmap. And so um, um, the returns just aren't quite there yet. But for people, they feel very passionate about it, as I do and as you two do. And they choose to, to sort of follow those passions, sure. follow those convictions with their with I their think, personal investments. Yeah, I think both give a signal to just the culture of the company, right? Um, we said this on our last one, the trend is your friend. Um, and so you're not um, either compelled to do it because you're passionate about it, but if you're not identifying that as this is where the market's headed. Um, and if you look around and there's companies who aren't doing that, that's probably a little bit of a flag. To... You, but you know what's interesting is, as, as, I, as I talk to my peers at other companies, and that's, that's what I love about my role is that to some extent, we have our, our secret sauce, right? We have yeah. things that we don't want to share because it's a competitive advantage. But in this area of, of, of ESG and CSR and really the environment, we talk very freely. Hey, where are you with renewable fuels? And yeah. you know, what sort of, um, what sort of you know, um, position or is your organization taking on everything from low rolling resistance tires to retreads to, to uh, you know, have y'all tried CNG and LNG? You know, we had good luck, bad luck, you know. So we have these conversations where, you know, a rising tide floats all boats. And so I love that part of the job. And when yeah. I can go to a conference and meet with other people. Um, in fact, Danny, it was your show where um, I believe it was one of the summits that you were yeah, part of summit. where I met Rachel, oh. uh, yeah, VP of ESG at um, CH Robinson. Mm -hmm. Right. She and I have since. I reached out to her on LinkedIn. She said yes. Uh, she checked me out. You're not, you know, creepy LinkedIn stalker. Right. And um, <laughs> and we've had many conversations. And and she's just a rock star. And we exchanged some really interesting ideas. At some point, we should talk about greenwashing because she and I talked a lot about that. Companies that take a very public position, yeah. but then don't actually do anything about it. Yeah, to drive people to the more LinkedIn stalk you, I liked your post on the, uh, the old Pepsi ads and greenwashing and the correlations you were trying to Oh, yeah, that was a recently. great. So yeah, check yeah. them out. We'll give you where to find them at the end of the show. I love diving into the technology and the environmental issues as a side of this, because to me, that's the hardest part of the path we're trying to walk as an industry. And I certainly appreciate your view from sort of a band of brothers in the foxhole together, because we're being somewhat pushed this way by customers and and stakeholders and the globe recognizes climate as an ongoing issue and has pointed to emissions as the problem. But there's also people that want to run and take the lead. And it feels like Covenant has done that. And I just think it's important to recognize that you guys are vital to leading the way. And that's why this show exists is to continue to, as Danny said, amplify the message, excite people about the opportunity because you can do business well while doing good as an organization. Yeah. And that's a great point. I want to bring up something you know, you haven't touched on it yet. I feel like you're almost there, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but I feel like, you know, it's funny. I feel like capital cap, company, publicly traded companies that, you know, have, um, uh, have a commitment to their stakeholders. We look, we get sort of broad brushed as sort of evil, sort of, you know, all about the profit. <clears throat> yeah. And, and while there may be some of that, most companies that I come across in the fleet area, we've been doing a lot of these environmental positive type initiatives for a long time really just because it, the better fuel economy that we get, the, the better value we can give to our shareholders, to our customers. And so when I went back and started peeling the layers of things that we were doing five and 10 years ago, we've constantly been making positive, you know, sort of investments in the fleet to get us to a better place where our idle time is being reduced, mm -hmm. fuel economy is going up. Um, 
you know, trying to reduce, um, I've already said idle time, but, you know, experimenting with electric APUs and, and things like that. So we don't idle at truck stop without, in, without customers asking us to do it. So I just want to point out to almost every fleet that's probably watching today, you know, thumbs up. Most of you are, have been doing this for a long time. You just mm -hmm. may not have been calling it CSR. Right. And there's, you know, sustainability for me is two things, right? Like, how are you going to continue to operate your business, but in the context of what's happening around you, right? Um, and so I, it is important to be, to be doing those things and understanding as the, as the environment changes and the market changes and the demands change. And we talk about this, even the customer base and um, the employee base changes, the demands of you as a company are going to change. It is going to be higher demand to be more eco. And so these investments that you have been making and that you're continue to make, I think allow you to be more sustainable as a profitable business while also being a more sustainable way to practice the craft that you do. So I think it's very important to, to understand. And, I, and I, like you said, it, a lot of, I think, critics come at it with a lens of you're giving up profit to be sustainable. Rather, you're planning for the future to continue to be profitable. Well, and, and another angle on this is um, there's a book. Uh, I, I, I made a mental note not to forget it before I came in here this <laughs> afternoon. But there's a... Um, there's a book that has a lot of statistics about companies and what the real reason is behind CSR. And, and in it, they had this interesting statistic that said 90% of consumers, not, not shippers, customers, consumers look to corporate America to solve environmental problems. And so they're looking to fleets like us. Yep. They're looking to companies like Amazon. They're looking to companies like, like Walmart to lead the effort, to, to lead the investment, to help us all get to a better place. And, and they're probably right. It certainly makes a consumer feel better when you can get to choose with your wallet towards something that's good, as opposed to being you know, taxed for to having it come out of your paycheck by the other opportunity, which is the stick, yep. right? Um, you mentioned a, a great point about current technologies that are available as being an opportunity to do business better and do good. And, and what we've seen with a lot of fuel efficiency measures, trailer aerodynamics, um, alternative fuels, is a lot of times you're actually resulting in eliminating waste and saving cost, which is really the low hanging fruit for most of us out there if we put the right amount of effort and collaboration behind it as an industry. What, what gets most of us excited though is thinking about the future, right? Thinking about 10 years, 20 years down the road, what are the breakthrough technologies and the dominant fuels gonna be? How is the landscape gonna change from a competitive nature? How do we bridge that gap? I know this report is an effort to highlight what we're about, what we're doing, how much we care, but it also needs to, to show us where you're going to go. So maybe can you help us peek behind yeah, the curtain? Yeah, so I'm reading this book right now. And if anybody out there has, knows, a, knows someone who knows someone who knows someone that can hook me up with Bill Gates, I would love that. <laughs> Bill Gates' new book on the climate. I don't always sure. agree with Bill Gates. Okay, uh, He and I are very different in a lot of ways. But having most of my career been in technology, he's always been a hero. His latest book on climate change, I'm about halfway through it, is, is fantastic. And one of the things that he really talks about in there is if Moore's law could only work as well within the environmental, the progress that we're making. So Moore's law was the idea that every 18 months uh, processor speeds would, would double in mm -hmm. speed. That has consistently been true in the technology industry and still continues to be true today. That is not true in the environment. That is not true in the, how quickly uh, battery capacity is going, how um, efficient solar panels are. Um, it just doesn't move along at that same rate of speed. And it's frustrating because, you know, I've sort of gotten used to my iPhone getting 
right? You know, significantly better and faster, the camera, the or, or the Android, no, no, no judging uh, platforms here. But, you know, most technology just, and it's frustrating to like come to work every day and not open up the latest FreightWaves email and see some disruptive battery capacity technology chemistry that's, you know, 10 times as powerful at a third of the weight. So, you know, it's, um, it, I, I'm still waiting yeah. to open your email one day, Danny, and to see the next company. I'll tell you about one thing that was really interesting. I just took a 6,500-mile um, road trip in my Sprinter van across country, and I got to look at thousands of trucks and every type of trailer skirt, tire, uh, solar panel on the top that you can imagine. But I pull into Northern California. Um, I, I emerge out of the Redwoods in this little kind of weird town called Eureka. Mm. And I go to the gas pump and it's a Phillips 66, which is also, which actually was 76, the green thing, but it's Phillips 66. And it says renewable diesel. Now I've filled up with every flavor of diesel at this point that you can imagine. This is the first time I've seen it. And I'm looking at it like renewable diesel. That sounds good, but what is that? Mm. And I'm looking at it I'm like, well, maybe I should go for number two across the street and number two is a different kind of diesel. It's the more traditional type of diesel that is recommended in all diesel vehicles, including the trucks that we operate. And this guy next to me, you know, in this big giant truck with like a side-by-side -side and a motorcycle in the back says, dude, you need to use this stuff. He said, it's a little more expensive, but this will make that thing run like it's on fire. And so I filled up and sure enough, my Sprinter has never run better. And so I got home and I started researching like, what is this stuff? And it's actually this, it would take a long time to explain. You actually probably know more than I am. It's, it's not biodiesel, but it is, and it's not petroleum based, but the cetane level in it is higher. Um, technically it costs, I think twice what they charge for it because there's, you know, because the refinery on it is so much more expensive, but if we could get that stuff in our trucks, that would be amazing. I know I've gone off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but you've gone down the trail that I would love to follow you down. Okay, so that's, let's my, that's my priority. So tell me about the, the, tell me about this stuff, and yeah, and, so, and this is not a plug for Phillips sixty six. Yeah, although we're not getting paid, yeah, promise. Yeah. But it is a, it's a unique, maybe a breakthrough technology that's got a lot of support and funding behind it, and much of it is driven by regulation, right? So today you've got a national blending standard for renewable fuels, ethanol in the gas tank biodiesel and in the normal diesel blend in California and pretty much all on the West Coast, Oregon and now Washington, you've got a low carbon fuel standard that is promoting all the alternatives to fossil. So CNG, RNG, LNG, renewable diesel, ethanol, electric, electric backed by solar. So it's coming from a you know carbon neutral source. Um, and they're all finding opportunities to monetize the um, distribution of these alternative fuels. So today in California, renewable diesel actually makes up about 25% of the blend. Wow. Relative to nationally, it's probably 5%, 6% for biodiesel. And that's all because of those mandates. But to your point, it's cleaner. It's based on um, either used cooking oil or virgin vegetable oil. So it's coming from a totally different non-fossil feedstock. But it does have a green premium if you're to that point in, in Gates's book. Much of the alternatives has the significant hurdle to overcome, which is we don't have scale, we don't have distribution networks aligned, and we don't have all the incentives for the whole ecosystem to bring everyone in alignment on it. And we still have a lot of fossil pushback because we've got significant capital invested in current infrastructure and technologies and, and incumbency matters. So it's but, but, exciting. Yeah, I'd love but, to see more of it. But what's interesting about Phillips, Shell, Exxon, Chevron, you know, the, the main sort of energy yeah. companies out there, they all are investing heavily in, 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 in 
everything from from fuel, but also you know Shell's doing a lot of work on um, electrical grids. You know they're spending a certain amount of their annual spend every year on developing new charging stations. I don't know what the split is between over here and over in the Europe where they're based, and you know it's a Dutch company. Yep. But um, but 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 kudos to to the energy companies for 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 leading the charge in some of that. I'm not saying they deserve a Nobel yeah. Prize yet, but hopefully one day they will. <laughs> I have a question for you, Tyler. So as you look at California's maybe a proving ground of what can be sustainable in trying to be more sustainable, does it transfer out to the rest of the country or what's the, you know, and how does that, like, how are you seeing that come into how you're planning for the future as well? Is, do you look at California as a place to, for inspiration and do you think it's scalable outside of that framework? I mean, the technology clearly works and is scalable and could use, um, a lot of the same distribution channels as today. And this is the whole, you know, EV versus liquid fuels. What's the future? I don't know. I wish I knew the answer, but I can tell you the appetite's there. And it's going to take either a change in regulations, like New York State's looking at similar regulations. So is Minnesota and a lot of the Midwestern states where most of the, you know, oils used for these feedstocks are grown and harvested. Um, I can tell you fleets would love to have access to it, but fleets aren't going to pay twice for it. Right. So there's got to be more happening from a, a governmental, most likely, standpoint to get these fuels to market. So, from an LCFS perspective, maybe just like explain that. And do you guys, how do you see that benefit going downstream? Sure. To the end user. Well, an example would be, you know, EV in California today. If you go and buy an electric vehicle, whether it's a forklift or a Sprinter van, if you're displacing diesel, that action is going to generate a certain amount of credits that are tied to emissions reductions. And those credits have a value in the market and they're openly traded. In fact, it's the highest carbon price in the world. It's about three times the cost of Europe's carbon tax today. And that's why it's getting the adoption that it has. So if you're a fleet and you wanted to invest in alternative fuels, I mean, you've seen it with Pepsi and their Modesto facility, like that's the place to do it in California where you get to try it, take your benchmarks, understand how it really operates. And then hopefully as we start to see scale and adoption, because Matt, I'd love to hear from you, you know, what a driver's like about some of these new technologies. What's the non-monetary, um, besides emissions reductions, right? We're seeing differences in performance. We're seeing quieter calves. We're seeing things that might have a bigger impact on the users than the actual emissions reduction. So I really want to answer that, but I want to answer the California question yeah, yeah. a little bit. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I was just in California um, last month and uh, I, I have a, have a sort of a love-hate relationship with California. It's a beautiful state. They're, it's one of the largest economies in the world, and definitely in the United States. It's beautiful. I, I was doing a lot of outdoor stuff on the Lost Coast up in Northern California. Um, some of the things that are going on there are a little crazy right now, but um, I followed the PG&E stuff a lot during the wildfires, mm -hmm. and you know, there's a lot of interesting backstory on what happened there because a lot of the... Um, the money that they did not spend on maintaining the lines was mandated by the state 10 years ago. You have to invest a certain amount in renewable energy. They invested, PG&E invested heavily in solar and hydro um, in things that actually allows almost 10% of their energy output to be from renewable sources. So, so kudos to PG&E, but they had to divert some of those investment resources from mm -hmm. maintaining the grid. Um, Another thing about California I think is interesting is um, Gavin Newsom's commitment for all new vehicle sales, um, consumer cars to be electric by 2035 is just crazy. Like that's just not going to happen. The technology is just not going to move along. However, I am a big fan of big, ambitious goals. Sure. 
um, and I do believe as much as I am a capitalist that the government has a unique role in the world and in our country to drive behavior. Um, government investment in aviation back during, you know, in early 1900s is one of the reasons why aviation is what it is today. And there's a lot of other examples like that. Um, the COVID vaccine and other types of things where they were able to yeah. kind of change regulations in order to speed things up. Yeah. So I think that California and Gavin Newsom and this big goal that he threw down is, um, is huge. I don't think it's going to happen. And Biden just made a similar sort of, you know, EV commitment. But I, I love having gr- big goals for us to all sort of, uh, you know, to work on. So, so California's leading the charge in that, you know, kudos to them. Yeah. Um, especially in hydrogen production, you know, which is a whole nother conversation. Danny, we should we'll talk have to have you back time. out on that yeah. one. Yeah. We've got some good context there too. Yeah. So, um, okay. So back to your question. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. You know, drivers, it's interesting. I'm not sure. I gotta think of the delicate way to say this. I'm not sure they wake up in the morning thinking about these things. Sure. You know, they want to know, you know, is my fridge working? Is my truck comfortable? Am I getting paid? Am I getting home on time? Um, we have given some of um, our drivers access to technology like a level two truck. So we have a, a team. Well, Daimler was one of the, we were one of the first fleets to get a level two truck. I believe there was 11 or 13, maybe 14 of them that were given out. We got one of them. We put a husband and wife team from here in Chattanooga. They drive back and forth to LA every week in it. Wow. They have threatened to quit if we try to take it away. They love the technology. <laughs> now, granted, level two. Yeah, L2 you, is lane assist and some other. It's more of a safety thing. technology, okay. but they love it. There's some aerodynamic changes. And of course, they did a few upgrades inside the cab. They loved it. Um, and, and again, seriously, they, they said they were kidding, but I think they were serious. If we tried to take it away, they were going to quit. I've heard the same thing from um, drivers who use electric APUs. Um, electric APUs obviously reduce idle time, but there's an argument to be, made, to be made for significant driver comfort. They sleep better at night when the engine's not rumbling, and maybe you could translate that into even a safer driver. And so mm-hmm. I have heard, um, I've got good friends across the town at US Express. They've put in um, several hundred of these, and um, most of their driver population absolutely loves the technology, not because of the reduction of idle time, although they are starting to you know, create some incentives and some um, um, competition among the drivers in order to kind of reduce idle time. Mm -hmm. But they just like it because they're more comfortable and they sleep better. And hey, that's a win-win for everybody, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't think the average driver wakes up thinking that. But but it would be interesting to explore like gamification if we could write an app that you could deploy across a fleet and say, okay, whoever gains the brakes and the throttle and in, in, a, in, a, in a lane, like you don't want to compare a guy driving across Nebraska to a guy driving across the Rockies, but like whoever can squeak out the best fuel economy wins a, a prize of and some there's sort. There's a future for carbon intelligence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were talking about blockchain gamification. We'll figure out how to monetize yeah. it. <laughs> um, maybe take that new technology adoption idea back upstream to the customer side. And let's unpack, we know there's an additional cost. We know not all customers are willing to bear it. How do we start to move that needle, or maybe let's ask the question this way. Where are some of the biggest pain points in rolling out this technology that you have seen and know works and want to give to customers? What are the pain points? Well, you don't, you're not realizing this, but you're sort of bringing this conversation yeah. back full circle back to CSR, Perfect. which is where we started. And we have three minutes to, to sort of finish talking about this. But, you know, it's interesting. A lot, if you look at Walmart's Project Gigatron, you know, the uh, if, to save, what is it, a billion 
pounds of CO2 output mm-hmm. or is it 50, some enormous number. The only way they're going to be able to get there is to push some of that responsibility downstream to the carriers. Um, and so, you know, what you're what we're starting to see, I read about it more than we experience it firsthand, but what I read is that care, uh, shippers are willing to pay more if you can guarantee that that freight was moved in a, in a responsible and a green sort of way. Mm-hmm. I don't experience that a lot firsthand, but I read about it a lot. And, but I just think more of that's going to have to happen. Mike Roth, you know, from NACB, uh, North American uh, Council for Efficiency, he and I have talked about that before. Like, what is it really going to take for fleets to start investing? It's really going to take customers um, and shippers realizing that we can't make these investments without changing our rate right. structure. And so it's kind of the chicken or the egg thing. Um, so it's a balance. And some of our more progressive shippers have ESG and CSR plans of their own. And so mm-hmm. if we can help them get there, we have one customer in particular that wants us to explore in a battery electric truck because they have carbon goals and objectives that if we help them meet it, they can claim it as their own. Sure. It's almost like we need to align the incentives and the right measurements and accounting for all parties to be able to contribute. And I'd like to pick your brain on this. We don't have time for it today, so we'll have to come back. But I do think there's an opportunity to um, allow multiple shippers to maybe share the cost by maybe unbundling certain environmental attributes and allowing carriers to kind of put them out on the market. It yeah. comes, comes to the idea of being able, if you can put the value on the carbon or the emissions, then yeah. you can drive that back upstream to the actual action being taken to reduce it. In a few seconds we have left, I'll just say this uh, one last thing. What Some of the more progressive places in the world where, 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 where significant investments going on is in European countries. Yeah. I've read that in, um, in downtown uh, Rome, Italy, within the next two years, they're not going to allow diesel vehicles mm-hmm. within 10 miles of, of city center. And other sort of Norway, Scandinavian countries are also leading the charge in that. And so once that starts happening, then shippers are going to be forced to work with carriers who like, well, we got to put an electric truck in there or a hydrogen truck or whatever. So, um, yeah, lots That's to That's an interesting about. take when you go at the small level because it's almost like, you know, California's doing it, but certain cities are doing it. It right. kind of mirrors what we can do individually in our own lives, right? Yeah. The actions we can take to promote more sustainable behavior by supporting the corporates, kind of bringing that back around as well. So, Norfolk Southern isn't just in the business of moving freight. They're in the business of a better planet. To learn more about Norfolk Southern's industry-leading sustainability initiatives, go to nscorp.com slash better planet.